You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. is one of 50 libraries around the country that uh, were selected to do a series of programs on the Vietnam War following the Ken Burns and Novak Novak, um, documentary, and I'm assuming that some of you have watched the the documentary, and that's why you're here. This evening, we're pleased to have Arnold Skip Isaacs here to talk about his experiences. the title of his talk is The Vietnam War, Realities That Got Lost. And um, Skip is going to talk about um, did American troops fight in Vietnam with one hand tied behind their backs? Was the draft system fair? Did anti-war protests turn U.S. policy around? Um, Skip Isaacs covered the war's last three years for the Baltimore Sun, and he left Saigon in the final U.S. evacuation the day before South Vietnam's surrender. He's going to talk about the issues that I mentioned, and uh, also he'll be signing copies of his two books, which we have up here. If you'd like to uh, buy those, I'll be selling those after the program. So please join me in welcoming Skip Isaacs. Well, thank you for coming, uh, and Judy, thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, mainly, I'm going to focus on American memories of Vietnam and the continuing debate, which, as we've seen in the response to the burns Novick documentary this year, this fall, that debate may not be as loud or as passionate as it was during the war, but it's certainly nowhere near resolved. We still, we're still arguing about it. And in that debate, a lot of facts have gotten lost. And they've gotten lost in the narratives of both sides, not just one. And I'm here really sort of basically to try to remind you of some of those facts. Uh, but before I get to the national memory, I'll, and I'll, I, as I told Judy, uh, if I, if I, went on and talked about all the facts that I think have gotten misrepresented. We'd be here until well into tomorrow, so with with great difficulty I will try to restrain myself. Uh, But before I get to the national memory, for reasons I hope will become clear, I'm going to start with a memory of my own, and from Vietnam, not from from the discussion in this country. And this was in, I was in one of those villages of which there were a lot in Vietnam like this, where the road that ran in front of the houses was, by the way we figured it in those days, government-controlled by the South Vietnamese government. At least in the daytime, military and civilian traffic moved freely on those roads, like the taxi that I came up in. But if you went off the road and walked maybe 100 meters out behind the houses to the end of the first fields behind those houses... You, you were no longer in government territory. You were in enemy territory. Not that the VC were, were, were there. Most of the time they weren't. But they could be there any time they wanted to. There was no 
government presence to restrict their freedom of movement. So the Republic of places like that, the Republic of Vietnam, the, the country that Americans were there to defend, was no more than a couple, few hundred meters wide, sort of a skinny ribbon uh, going across a countryside that, that didn't govern. Uh, and not only that, this ribbon was rolled up uh, every evening at dark, actually an hour or two before dark, and not rolled back out until the sun was up the next day. As I say, this was no, not at all, it was sort of weird, but it wasn't unusual. There were a lot of places like that. And the reason I remember this particular village is what the people there told me about their sons. Now, the local VC in that region, uh, and I imagine this was true, you know, there were probably variations, but I imagine it was true most places. But they liked to get their recruits very young, 14, 15, because they, they wanted to indoctrinate them and they wanted to get them you know, at, a, at an age young enough that they could form their minds. So they'd come into villages like this one if they needed manpower. They'd come into villages like this one and they'd round up the boys of that age and take them off into the, into the back, farther into, the, into their zone to train them and indoctrinate them and get them ready to become soldiers for the liberation. It was, wasn't, formed, wasn't set up exactly the same way, but it was a version of, of a draft. So when, those, when the boys in this village got to be 13 or so, they told me their family sent them away. They sent them into the district town or some, someplace else that was more secure where the VC were less uh, able to operate. So to keep them away from the Viet Cong recruiters. And they'd stay there for a few years, but if they were still there when they turned 18, then they would be subject to being drafted into the South Vietnamese Army. So before they turned, before their 18th birthday, the families would bring them back and then send them out into the commun farther into the communist zone. And by this time, the, the, the VC didn't want them anymore. They were too old. They, 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 they'd been inducted, you know, corrupted or brainwashed by living on the government side. So they wouldn't be reliable. And they really weren't, so they were probably not going to end up in the VC army. Although it was still very dangerous out there because that was the area where regularly hit by artillery and airstrikes from, from, from the, the anti-communist side. But it was still, at least the families thought, it was, they were still safer out there than they would be in the government army. And when I heard this story... I remember thinking that I was hearing the, the real voice of the people that both sides in Vietnam claimed they were fighting for. Those peasants in that village, they didn't see either side fighting for them. They, they, they hated both of them, or feared and hated both of them, and with plenty of good reason. In their lives, this war had nothing to do with saving democracy from communist dictatorship, or liberating the Vietnam from the American imperialists and their puppets. The war to them was just a sort of a huge, violent force that they couldn't do anything about going on year after year after year, destroying their fields and blowing up their houses and taking away their sons to be killed. Now, I think that story was important to me. And I heard, I mean, not only from that encounter, but I had many other encounters that left sort of the same conclusion. And I thought this told me something about the real nature of that war. Uh, 
And here's why it, I think it's relevant or I, I felt relevant to the subject I'm speaking about here because that's exactly what's missing for the most part from the American discussion of Vietnam. was then and, and still and has been ever since. Uh, you know, that was my conclusion about this war, but, uh, but you just don't hear very much about it uh, in, the, in the arguments that go on here about what was, the, what was this war, what, what was the real nature of this war. And that's because Americans almost always are remembering the American experience, which is not the same thing as the, the war that actually happened out there in, in an Asian country on the other side of the world. Those are two different pieces of history and that in many ways are almost very tenuously connected to each other. So with that disconnect in mind, let me go on and give some thoughts about myths and facts in this debate. One story that we hear a lot uh, is that Americans didn't fail because of mistaken policy or, or because mili our military power was ineffective but because long-haired college kids and, or timid politicians or left-wing professors and intellectuals uh, or dishonest or disloyal journalists or all of the above uh, didn't let our guys win, as, as President Reagan once said. Now, this, is, this, is, this, uh, this gets the political, the political and military leaders of that era off the hook because it puts the blame for the failure on somebody else, not on their mistakes. And for, so they like that story a lot, and for the same, same reason, basically, it's popular in, in, it's remained current in the institutional culture that those leaders passed on to their successors in the military and the sort of national security structures. And more broadly than that, it appeals to all kinds of political and cultural opinion makers who, for ideological and emotional and patriotic re and partisan reasons have a strong need to fit Vietnam into the national narrative that we like, uh, where we tell ourselves all the time that Americans, American wars are righteous and patriotic and heroic. Uh, so in that version, that, that concept, you know, the, the problem that we had in Vietnam was not a wrong strategy but just that we put too many limits on it. We didn't stick to it long enough. That our guys could have, could have won and should have won, but we made them fight with one hand behind their backs. And actually, there's another version, of one version of this is that we, not only that we could have won, but that we did win. There's been a sort of a spate of revisionist history saying, oh, yeah, we had it done. We had it won uh, in 1972. And then there, that version falls down a little bit on just how we managed to not to realize that victory, but that some way or another we threw it away by signing a, a, a bad peace agreement. Well, how true is this story? You know, there were limits on, on the way, the, the conduct of the war, as, as there would be in any war. But a lot of facts don't exactly suggest unreasonable restrictions. Uh, I won't go into all of them, but let me just give you a few numbers about firepower. Uh, from the air, in 19, between 1964 and 1973, the United States dropped approximately twice as many tons of bombs in Southeast Asia 
as the Allied forces combined dropped on both Germany and Japan uh, in World War II. Twice as much tonnage in, in this one small area. Uh, some targets were off limits, mainly in the northern areas of North Vietnam that were close to China because the, the you know, Americans were, were afraid, concerned that American airstrikes might provoke, provoke a Chinese response, as we had done not that long before in Korea. But those limitations don't change the fact that the air campaign in, in the Vietnam War was the heaviest by, a, I believe, a, quite a large margin, the heaviest in the history of warfare. And on the ground, there was kind of a similar phenomenon. There was a study by the Army's Logistics Command uh, concluded that about the U.S. war and the ground in Vietnam, that the Americans had, quote, devastating conventional firepower unparalleled in military history. And the same study went on to say, or said, said that American commanders had, quote, almost unlimited supply, remarkably high operational readiness rates as applied to equipment, a seemingly endless flow of ammunition and petroleum, of ammunition and petroleum, and immunity for the most part from external fiscal restraints. You know, if you look back at World War II, the great noble crusade, there were really limitations on the, 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 the force that we could use. If you were going to equip and, and supply munitions and fuel for an operation in this place, you had to take, not operate someplace else. And that was rarely true, basically not, never true in Vietnam. And these numbers are even more staggering when you compare them with the enemies. For years and years, U.S. forces used several hundred times as much, as many tons of ammunition, uh, air and ground munitions, than the communists did. Uh, I found Pentagon records showing they're a little sketchy, at least the ones I have are, but uh, I did find records for one year, 1969. Uh, and the U.S. used in every month something like 130,000 tons of, of ammunition about three-fifths of that for air ammunition and the rest in ground fire. And the highest firepower the communists ever used, according to at least our estimates, uh, which they didn't reach, they weren't anywhere close to it in 1969, the highest, their heaviest use of, uh, of firepower was in 1972, when they used about 1,000 tons a month. So uh, the, the disparity is, I mean, you know, everybody who was there understood that there was a hell of a lot more resources on our side than there was on the communist side. That was obvious. You know, you could hear that with your ears. But I was still pretty stunned when I when I discovered how how wide that what gap was really. Ours again? Hmm? Theirs was one thousand. One thousand tons a month, and, what and was ours? well, for that one year, it was one hundred thirty thousand tons. Uh, and this was, and as I say, at the time that we were expending those one hundred thirty thousand tons, they weren't anywhere close to that thousand tons. So it makes, to me, I mean, there's, there's more to this argument than just uh, the, the, the number of tons of, shell, of, of shells and bombs. But just that by itself makes, to me, makes it pretty dubious to argue that we failed because we didn't use enough military power. And that we could have won by doing more of what we, what, that we should have done more of what we were already doing. 
To me, the much more logical conclusion is that the U.S. style of war making couldn't win that war. Because if it could, we'd have won. But didn't we have guerrilla people trained? Weren't the Green Berets trained to do that type of thing? Well, we had... Yeah, I mean, we had to a limited, a limited degree, and and it's sort of that that you know the war went on for so long that you know different strategies and different tactics were used in different periods, but yes, we had you know sort of pacification and all that kind of stuff, what they now call counterinsurgency, but I'm just I'm just using these to to say that the argument that we didn't use enough power seems pretty flimsy uh, to me. Uh, I did not notice when I started, so to tell me when it's time to shut up. Just keep going. What's the next? <laughs> well, the the another story that uh, uh, popular story is is the one about what we call the war at home, and typically that's told like this: that uh, the war goes on, uh, demonstrations, anti-war demonstrations grow. Eventually, the public agrees with the demonstrators and turns against the war and forces the leadership, the national government, to reverse course and pull out the troops. That is, that the, the, the movement did it. Demonstrators uh, and, and, you know, on campuses and out on the streets who essentially turned U.S. policy around. And both sides like that story because to the, you know, the, 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 the opponents tell it uh, as, as a story about a huge success in a, in a noble cause. And the people, the, the, the supporters of the war, for them it validates the one I was just talking about, that we didn't let, them, we didn't let our guys win, that, uh, that misguided and disloyal or disloyal protesters kept us from winning not bad policy or, or bad leadership. But both sides repeating that story doesn't make it true. Uh, and I, I don't, I'm not suggesting that the peace movement had nothing to do with the change in policy. Of course, it was a factor and a significant factor. But the actual history of our change of course from escalation to disengagement is really a different and more complicated story. And unlike a lot of issues in, in the history of that war, there's not much disagreement about when that U-turn took place. In February, March 1968, Tet Offensive is raging in Vietnam. The communists, they, they didn't win, and they took devastating losses, but they did completely blow up the military's claims that we had them on the ropes, that they were too weakened to, 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 to continue the war for much longer. So this is going on. The generals at the military leadership asked President Johnson to send 200,000 more troops to Vietnam on top of the half million who were already there. And after hovering over it for a few weeks, Johnson turns that down. He, he, did, he approved a much, more, a much smaller reinforcement. And then he goes on television, announces, uh, issues a call for immediate peace negotiations, announces a partial halt to the bombing of North Vietnam, and astonishing almost everybody, uh, declares that he's not going to run for re-election, drops out of the election. And from then on, with all kinds of twists and turns, but really without significant deviation, the American goal was to get out of Vietnam 
rather than to try to find a way to win it. So that turn, as I say, it occurred at a fairly uh, concrete and identifiable moment. Uh, so who changed Johnson's mind? And was it the anti-war movement? Most historians would agree that the, the most important actors in that period were not anti-war demonstrators, but a group of charter members of the Cold War establishment in Washington. These are guys from the exact opposite pole, politically and culturally, from the, the, the peace movement. People like Johnson's new defense secretary, Clark Clifford, uh, Dean Acheson, the former Secretary of State, uh, Generals Omar Bradley and Matthew Ridgway, the former World War II generals, and, and a bunch of others of similar stature. And they were called, they, they, these, this group who met regularly as sort of unofficial advisors to, to Johnson, and they were called the Wise Men. And the Wise Men had been, right up until then, almost unanimously steadfast supporters of the Vietnam effort. I mean, that was, you know, they, they were the authors of the sort of strategic concept of the world that, that that war came out of. But in early 1968, most of them, most significantly Clifford, because he was now inside the administration, uh, just concluded that the military, that the American military leadership did not have a plausible strategy to win the war. And they told Johnson, reversing their previous support, that a satisfactory outcome in Vietnam was out of reach, at least at any conceivable, thinkable cost. And that continuing a vain effort there was hurting American interests, not helping American interests in the, in the larger world. Also, about at almost exactly the same moment, uh, Voters in New Hampshire gave unexpectedly strong support, although not victory, uh, to Senator Eugene McCarthy in the New Hampshire, who was running in the New Hampshire Democratic presidential primary uh, against, against Johnson uh, as an anti-war candidate. His campaign was strongly identified with the peace movement, and lots of the activists, lots of the people who worked for him came out of the, the peace movement. But... A lot of research shows, and this was actually known at the time, too, that a large number of his voters, and possibly a majority of them, actually favored more military action in Vietnam, not less. And they were voting against the conduct of the war, but not against the war itself. Uh, they were telling the president their message was, win or get out, which is an entirely different message from the, the movement's unqualified message of, to get out. But by now, not only most of the wise men, but also a number of key and close advisors, Johnson's close associates inside the White House, had decided that winning was not a feasible goal. There wasn't any way, we didn't have a way to do it. So if those were the alternatives, win or get out, the only one that was attainable was getting out. And a couple of meetings, a couple of weeks after the New Hampshire primary, that's what they told Johnson in a meeting in the White House. Dean Acheson, a group of the wise men were there. Dean Acheson told Johnson, we can no longer do the job we set out to do in the time we have left, and we must begin to take steps to disengage. And there were 14 of the, the wise men were in, in the room, and all but three of them 
Now, they weren't unanimous, but all but 311 out of them endorsed Atchison's advice. It was a somewhat formal uh, endorsement. And less than a week after that meeting is when Johnson gave his television speech. So, the, the, you know, you, you can't be precise and scientific about what caused what. But the, uh, the, the inside message from this group of very powerful and very sort of orthodox anti-communist Cold War, uh, not just advocates but architects of the Cold War, uh, was certainly not, it wasn't the same, and, and, it's, they, and they didn't change their minds because college kids were yelling in, in, on campuses. They, the division in the society was a factor. They were certainly conscious of that. I don't mean that they paid no attention to it. But that's not what influenced, that was not the crucial influence. And what about after 1968? Well, from, from then on, support for the war steadily declined, and it's harder to gin up support for a war that you're, not even, that you're just trying to get out of anyway. Uh, but it's very questionable, and the protests certainly continued to get larger and more and noisier. But it's very questionable that demonstrations alone or anti-war movement alone changed public opinion, or even that they were the most important influence. Uh, I And there's a lot of research that shows that from beginning to end, most Americans did not approve of the peace demonstrators. When they changed their minds about the war, it wasn't because they decided that the, 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 the anti-war group was right, that the, more, that the war was morally wrong, but it was because they didn't see it was getting anywhere, and they'd stopped believing that it would. And I have a personal story on that one, which is somewhat like the story from the Vietnamese village, uh, a time that I was certain, even if I couldn't prove it scientifically, that particular words that I heard from particular people represented a much wider reality. And this was during the, the uh, Vietnam moratorium of uh, a national protest campaign in October 69, which I was covering. I, I, was, I covered the, you know, the peace movement was my beat for several years before I went to Vietnam. I tell people I was an anti-war correspondent first, and then I became a war correspondent. And, when, and in the moratorium, the day I'm remembering, I went along with a, a peace activist, a local peace activist in Winthrop, Massachusetts, which, if you know the Boston area, it's sort of across the harbor from the city of Boston. It's what you fly over when you land, when you, before, when you, before you see water when you're landing at Logan Airport. And this peace committee person, who was a nice middle-aged lady, going from door to door with a petition calling for President Nixon to set a date for U.S. withdrawal from Vietnam. And we went from one house to the next, and almost everyone, listened, nodded, and signed the petition. I don't know how many doors we, I don't remember how many doors we knocked on, you know, maybe 40 or 50, and I don't think more than one or two people refused to sign. Well, I knew that a lot of people were fed up with the war, but I was startled that it was that close to unanimous. And I was also struck by how many of those folks opposed the war apparently in spite of the peace movement and not because of it. One woman told the peace lady, 
speaking about, she said, this whole thing is communist-inspired. I don't know if she's talking about the moratorium or the movement in general. But then, then she immediately said, added to that, of course, I'm not for the war or any of that business. And then a couple houses after that, uh, we, we knocked on a door, and a woman named Alice Baldinell came to the door. And she was in her 60s somewhere, I, I judged, with a very pronounced Boston accent. And the first thing she said when the lady explained what we were doing, she said, well, we, Americans can't just pull out of Vietnam and leave millions of innocent people to get their throats slit by the communists. And I, I would, I'm pretty sure that that came straight out of what uh, she had learned from the nuns 30 or 40 years before that about satanic communism. And then she wanted, Mrs., this woman, Mrs. Baldinell, said, she didn't like Hitler, she said. We had to stop him. If we'd get into that war earlier, maybe we could have saved all those people who got killed in that one. And I was standing there listening to this, and I was thinking, well, okay, here's one. It's not going to suck. But as soon as she mentioned Hitler in World War II, a doubtful look came over Mrs. Baldinell's face. And she said, I remember that war, she said. We had to get in, and we got in, and we fought, and then we won it, and then it was over. She said, this one here, she said. This one here seems like it's going to go on forever. And then for a moment she didn't say anything. And neither did the peace ladies. It was sort of a silent moment while Mrs. Baldinell was... So discussing this with herself, I guess. And then she reached out and took the, the clipboard and said, maybe you're right. She took the, and signed the petition. Well, I mean, that was sort of startling as, as in, the, in it being so abrupt in such a 180-degree turn. But I remember thinking as I was sort of watched this happen, that I was seeing what had really happened to American opinion and the public support for the war. People have just given up on it. Not because uh, they've been listening to the demonstrators, who they actually don't like either, but they've decided it's endless and useless, and they want it over. But their reasons had almost nothing to do, little or nothing to do, with the issues that the, 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 the anti-war movement, the organized movement, was talking about. So... This also, this story also kind of refutes the myth about who lost the war, because if if we lost because the loss because declining public support undermined the war effort, and that's I don't know if that's the reason we lost, but that, that's certainly a reason. But it wasn't the peace movement's fault that the support declined; it was the policymakers and military leaders who failed to find a way over quite a long period of time. I mean, by October 69, American forces, major U.S. units had been involved for four and a half years. That's a year longer than it took us to win World War II, or we say we won World War II, to give an assist to the, to the Soviet Union in winning World War II. So, that's a, so to me, the, the, the story that the peace movement turned the, turned the country around is also... It's not completely false, but it's not. It's a long way from the whole story. What's the next myth? Well, I was going to say, the next one, I don't know if it's a myth or a, or a hole, a gap. Uh, I think that one of the reasons that we've created these false memories or questionable memories 
is, is to try to make those mem- them more comfortable and make them consistent with what we believe about ourselves and about the country. You know, I mean, Amer- Americans are taught in school and in popular culture and in political discourse that we are a uniquely powerful and successful and virtuous country. We believe uh, that Americans are winners, not losers. We celebrate winning and losing is shameful and so on. And all that's pretty hard to reconcile with what happened in Vietnam. So we kind of tailor or shade that memory to make it less inconsistent, sometimes by downright falsifying memory, and sometimes by just sanding down the rough edges. And and one example, or, or one place where I think we have sanded down the rough edges is the issue of the draft. I mean, I think a lot of, I bet everybody here, or I'd be pretty surprised if there was anyone here who did not, in some sense, realize that the draft, the Vietnam draft, was not was un, was unfair in the sense that it didn't, you know, was easier easier on the privileged classes and tougher on those less privileged. But I wonder how many have anybody here heard of Project One Hundred Thousand? McNamara's morons. You heard about that? Yeah. Oh, was it? I think so. I think it may have been mentioned there. Huh. Uneducated, lower, or maybe I just read this, getting people that real... Well, what Project 100,000... I mean, I'm, I'm mentioning this because I think that it, it shows a depth of unfairness that people have not, don't remember very... I didn't, were not that aware of at the time unless they had direct personal encounters with it. Uh, but Project 100,000 was a, poly, a program mainly promoted by Robert McNamara, uh, which required, it didn't allow, but it required, it was mandatory on on draft boards uh, to call up men who were the lowest scores and in in many cases below the low qualifying score on the Armed Forces qualifying test, the qualification test, which is basically an IQ test. Now, keep in mind, the cohort of men who were draft eligible during Vietnam was huge. Right? These were these men were born at, at the height of the baby, the post World War II baby boom. They could have raised standards, been more selective, and had no trouble at all meeting the manpower needs of the armed forces. I was startled to discover uh, that I was born. I just the the immediately preceding generation. I was born in 1941. Uh, which is a pretty small cohort, and when my draft story was in the the, the the late stages, the last stages of the peacetime draft, nobody thought about Vietnam. Uh, and uh, but a higher percentage of my generation had military service by quite a bit, of, uh, than of the the generation that was draft eligible during Vietnam. So they could have raised standards, but but under Project One Hundred Thousand. Draft boards were, it was mandatory for draft boards to call up 5%, and this ended up to being some scores of thousands, of men who, who was, whose grades on the qualification test were actually below the minimum standard, men who would have been unfit for service. What was the reason? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> the McNamara and, and, and I'm not, I don't know if Johnson's on the record, he probably is somewhere, but the... the 
the official reason was that this was kind of a welfare program. We were going to take these guys into the army and make make you know train them and make better citizens out of them. And they, I don't know if they genuinely believed that or not. Uh, and there was, altogether, beside these, the ones who were below the minimum qualifying score, then another ten percent, which is an even larger number, at the at the bottom. You know, men whose scores were just barely qualified. So you had about altogether. Out of that draft, we had about 350,000 of these so-called new standard troops, uh, unqualified or minim- minimally qualified guys. Now, whether this was the reason or not, you know, I'm not a mind reader. I, I, don't, I don't like to guess about motivation. But certainly drafting more of these minimally qualified men meant that, it was e- that they, had, they didn't have to draft quite as many men from higher up on the social ladder and the educational ladder. So this policy made it easier, or at least didn't make it any harder, uh, you know, just for, for people like Bill Clinton and Donald Trump and Rush Limbaugh and quite a lot of others to, uh, to stay out of the draft. And the men who went in, instead of Clinton or Trump, especially the ones, the, 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 the least qualified, the lowest IQ of this, in this group, these were guys who couldn't, couldn't tie their shoes. They, they, could, they didn't know which their, their left foot from their right foot. If he had weapons in their hands, they were actually more dangerous to the other guys in their unit than they were to the enemy. The army hated this program. Uh, and there's, there's a devastating book about Project 100,000. It just came out a year or two ago. Uh, and the, the, the author is a Vietnam veteran named Hamilton Gregory. And he encountered this when he was in the army. He was a volunteer. He wasn't a draftee. But he encountered this program and was so horrified and outraged that over 40 years he kept, not, this wasn't his primary occupation, but he continued to collect, you know, stories and documents and do on. And he ended up with this book, which is called McNamara's Folly. And it came out, I think, last year or the year before. As McNamara's morons. Well... I think, yeah, I mean, I don't know. That's what that, that was how they were called. I mean, that, that was the, the, the slang term. And Gregory, you know, so this book is, a, it, it may be the best documented book of this kind I've ever seen, or certainly one of them. And it, it makes an ironclad case that the draft policy during Vietnam was, was a, I, I can't think of any other words except a moral disgrace. I'd recommend that, but it's a book everybody ought to read. And I'll toss in another book title here uh, that goes back to the, the, the beginning of this talk, but I didn't want to. I, I left it out because I didn't want to drag that out too long. But I don't. But I don't want to leave it out. Uh, and this book is a memoir called "When Heaven and Earth Changed Places." That's a title some of you may have encountered. The book it came out I think almost thirty years ago, uh, and and there was a movie. I think Oliver Stone, I'm not sure. I believe Oliver Stone made the movie. But the author, the author of this book is a woman named Lely Hayslip, who grew up during the war in a peasant family in Vietnam. And she was one of the very few people that had the same experience. She had the same sort of perception that the, uh, that the people in that village did and many others that I spoke to, that, that both sides were destroying her her life and her family's life and the, and the country's life. 
And she's one of the very, very few people who's ever given a voice to that experience. So I recommend that book also for anybody who wants to know what the war was actually like. So I could go on and on and on and on, but, but you'll be glad to know that I'll, I'll stop talking about myths. But one closing thought, uh, going back to the basic American perception of this war as an American event. When I was writing these notes for this talk, I, I, I thought of a different title from the one on the program, and the title of it would be something more like Things I Wish More Americans Would Remember About Vietnam, or Things I Wish Americans Would Remember More Accurately. So here's one thing I'd like Americans to remember. All of you, I'm sure, probably most of you have seen, and certainly have seen images of the memorial, the, the Veterans Memorial in Washington, the Wall of Names, uh, which is a powerful and moving image. But it remembers only the American piece of the war. You know, it tells us that, 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 that what we should remember, remember and care about is only what happened to Americans. So here's something to think about next time you become conscious of the wall. If you had a similar wall with the names of all the South Vietnamese soldiers, our, our allies, people who, were fought, who we were fighting with, with all their, their soldiers who died, that would be about three times as long as the wall in Washington. It would be about a third of a mile. And a wall, if it listed all the Vietnamese military and civilian casualties on both, dead, dead on both sides, using conservative estimates, uh, there would be maybe between one and a half and two miles long, or one and a half to two and a half miles long. Uh, you know, it would go all the way from where the memorial is now all the way to the capital with all those names. And if you put the casualty, if you name the casualties from Laos and Cambodia, you'd add another two miles maybe. So four miles of name. That would be, that's the, the true measure of the, that war's cost. And a, a better representation <laughs> in my opinion, about uh, what we should remember about it. So let me thank you for your patience, and which I imagine I have tried. So uh, thank you for listening. And yes? Oh, sure, yeah, I know. Yeah. Uh, I can leave it out and mm -hmm. free. And it's, yeah. that, the, there's been a very lively discussion since the Burns no right. documentary and, uh, with a group called Full Disclosure, and that's where the McNamara's morons that came up in the discussion. And it wasn't probably the, the Burns, no big movie. But mm -hmm. one of the chapters up in Boston, we have a chapter here, Madeline is a member of it, myself. Uh, it's called the Kilbergen chapter here. chapter in Boston called the Smedley Butler mm -hmm. chapter. And I don't do you, you Yeah, yeah, the Nicaragua, the, the, the general. A little pamphlet, a little track called War is a Racket. Mm -hmm. And he was a three-star general mm -hmm. who spent some of his years in the Marines try, trying to track down Sandino in Nicaragua. And uh, this little track is very memorable but, uh, in terms of saying, like, I'm just a hard gun for the Wall Street... <laughs> Big banks, and um, 
Anyway, uh, I guess the question, and this comes from studying this war, I served over there myself. I thought it was a good effort because I'd been to Berlin in 64 and saw the Berlin Wall and was all taken up with the communist, us versus them, the bipolar world and all this, you know. So mm -hmm. make, make Vietnam free for democracy. I had very little idea of how corrupt Diem was and the leaders that they had there. And, uh, but anyway, uh, you look at this, this is the, the wars we're doing now, the Vietnam War, you can go back in history probably, and that, that expression, war is a racket. You know, uh, what's, what's your comment? <laughs> well, you know, I don't know. War has certainly in many ways been convenient for the economically powerful. Uh, and I guess my sort of gut level feeling is a little bit different. I, I think that the, the most powerful single force, that the thing that's probably killed the most people has been that our leaders won't admit a mistake. You know, that, uh, that long after they actually should recognize, well, some do, or to some extent they, and to some extent they keep themselves from recognizing, uh, that, that we shouldn't be there. But once you've had, you know, a fairly small number, you know, like the first three, four hundred guys who got killed in Vietnam, then it becomes politically very, very, very hard to say that these guys were killed for a mistake. I recently had an exchange with somebody, a, a young guy I know who's in, the, who's in the Marine Reserve, actually. He's a reservist. He just came back from a deployment in Africa somewhere. But he, he writes things occasionally about military history and sends them to me. And he wrote this long and fairly exhaustive piece about the Beirut Marine Barracks bombing in, what was that, 1983, I think, or two, three. Uh, and when I wrote back to him, I said, you know, to me, and he was sort of thinking about this from a much more tactical point of view. But I think what I remember about that is that a couple months later, Reagan pulled them out. And he didn't say they shouldn't have been there in the first place. But it was pretty clear that those Marines were not, use, were not being, doing a useful thing in intervening in the conflict, the Palestinian-Lebanese conflict of the time. It was a little bit, not, I mean, this, the present ones are worse and more tangled, but it was kind of like Syria in which you had so many factions that no matter what you, which side you went in on, you were more likely to make things worse than better. And Reagan recognized that and he had the, 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 the courage and the, and, the, and the nerve to pull those guys out. And that's almost the only case I can think of. And I don't know at what stage... You, you start counting the casualties in Vietnam as being casualties mainly because we were unwilling to change our mind. But I, I somehow think that's a more potent... Now to me, that, that, that rings truer, a little truer than the, the sort of the capitalist conspiracy argument. But, but that's not an empty one either. I just, what upsets me, uh, Neil Sheehan, right in China Line, John mm -hmm. Man... Yeah. Respected work. He said in 66 and 67 in the Delta area, 
we didn't seem to find these Rube Goldberg kind of weapons made with plumbing pipes, etc., and this kind of thing. The Viet Cong were arming themselves with handmade weapons. And he said that's because some of the municipal leaders in the, in the southern towns were paying off the Viet Cong so that they have a good record. They weren't being attacked. They weren't, uh, you know, they were, and they were paying off with weapons. Trading with the enemy. There's a, another good book about about Vietnam. is is a book called uh, Uphill Battle. I think is the name of it, by a guy named Frank Scotton, who was one of the longest serving. He was a civilian. He was he he, he nominally belonged to USIS, I think, uh, but he was one of the longest serving Americans in Vietnam. He spoke Vietnamese fluently, and did a lot of meandering around by himself. Uh, and he described this when he, when he, some fairly early stage, when he got, you know, he, he described meeting some Vietnamese official who kind of shamefacedly admitted to him that there was a lot of trading back and forth. Eight or nine years later, when I got there, one of the, one of the encounters I remember is, is a, a, with a, I knew a guy who was a college friend of mine, personal friend, actually was my roommate for a while after college, so a pretty close friend who was a CIA officer, and he was over there. And I, went, I tracked him down and went and found him, and he introduced me to the, the provincial police commander. And the police commander, not my friend, was telling me that, uh, now this is too long a story to, to go into in much detail, but he, he described in some detail not just peasants buying a, you know, a jerry can full of gas for... 200 piastres and then selling it out the back door of the BC for 600 piastres. But an organized truck convoys protected by up officers up to division command. Very, not weapons, mostly, but everything else. Gas, uh, you know, outboard engine parts, all this kind of stuff. Uh, there was a huge amount of that. And the, the province report, I read a lot of province reports from the American aid types and they're full of this kind of stuff and we never found a way to stop that I think, I think corruption was actually the biggest single reason that we lost the war mm -hmm, John? Yeah but you know uh, my interest is not this recounting the Vietnam War which is very interesting I know but you know, what lesson do we learn and the lesson I pick is that we should have never been there in the first place. We didn't understand the situation. We really didn't understand the culture or anything of those people. And it seems to me that that was the case then. It's the case now. We're doing the same thing in you know, uh, the Middle East. We, we have very limited understanding of, of those cultures and our ability to, to really operate there effectively. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's the big lesson of Vietnam in my my view. Well, I, I mean, I don't think anybody could, at least anybody, any sane person could disagree with, disagree with that. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, uh, Clausewitz, I guess, is, was the author of Know Your Enemy. I think we lost, and I think the, the big intelligence failure in Vietnam is we didn't know our friends. And we convinced ourselves that the South Vietnamese had a capability that they actually didn't have. I mean, but and even if we had, I mean, you know, you got to 
you look at the, the big mm -hmm. picture and I mean, I have a client uh, who has a warehouse in West Baltimore. It's an, over an acre, and it's stacked to the to the ceiling with uh, uh, furniture. It's all from Vietnam. <laughs> you know, I mean, and yeah. this is sort of our recent history. You know, and I just think the United States has to learn that we cannot be involved throughout the world effectively this way. I think there's a, there's a real lesson there. Well, I agree, and I think part of that is that we, we also need to learn, uh, you know, all these guys have learned to say, well, there, we know there's no military solution, but that's the only kind they ever seem to come up with. Uh, and they ought to learn that to actually believe you that. You look at our, our administration now, is, is largely military people and the international yeah. uh, stage. I don't think we've learned the lesson of Vietnam. No. <laughs> it doesn't look like it to me. I mean, I, I, yes? Is it, is it true that uh, there were more Americans killed in the war after Nixon came in than before? Not, no, not quite. I think it's, you know, there are 58,000 total. And I think it was about 20,000 of those 58,000 were killed from 1969 on, so the, there were more casualties in, under, under Johnson than, than Nixon, but there, but it wasn't, you know, didn't go down that much. 69 was a bad year, and then after that, the casualties tailed off, and you know, and we we were pulling, they were pulling pulling out, and not only pulling out, but on the ground, they were not conducting as many operations, sort of offensive operations, as they had been before. So. So, well, thank you all. Well, thank you thank very you. much. Thank you. And, uh... This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.